All around the world, people are floundering. There's something missing, something more that they just can't grasp. Do you feel it too? Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Every week, host Kevin Monroe will help you navigate to your true north and flourish in faith, business, and life. You found us for a reason. Stay tuned to find out why. Hey, it's Kevin Monroe, and I want to welcome you to episode 17 of the Higher Purpose Podcast. We'll introduce today's guest in a few moments once we start the conversation, Clay Scroggins. I want to give you the backstory, how it is that I came about having Clay as a guest on the Higher Purpose Podcast today. He's got a book out, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge, subtitle, Leveraging Influence When You Lack Authority. Our son, Josh, Josh Monroe, several weeks ago, got the book right when it came out, started reading it, and he said, oh, dad, you got to interview Clay. Well, I ordered the book, read it, started listening to it as well on Audible. Couldn't agree more. So that's why we're having Clay join us today on the Higher Purpose Podcast. Let's dig in and explore how to lead when you're not in charge. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome Clay Scroggins to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Clay, you've got a brand new book out. Brand new book. Well, let's see. It's, uh, I don't know, three months old now. It's crazy. It's like having a little child that you're raising, you know? A, l- a lot less work, though. Uh, the work is all on the front end, not as much on the back end. I say that because my wife's about to have a, we're about to have our fifth child uh, in the next couple of weeks. So I am, uh, I'm getting ready, as oh. ready as we can get. Well, then I'm really grateful that you could carve out time in the midst of all of that to, to join us to talk about the book. And the name what? of the book is, I want you to share it. Yeah, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. And the, uh, the subtitle is Leveraging Influence When You Lack Authority. Wow. Folks, this is going to be a wonderful conversation. We'll get to that in just a moment, but there are a couple of background things that we need to cover so you understand who Clay Scroggins is. Clay, what's something that's not widely known or not in the official bio that would endear people to you a little bit here? I went to Georgia Tech on a Navy ROTC scholarship. Wow. I've got a family of military. My uh, older cousin went to West Point. The next cousin went to the Air Force Academy. The next cousin went to West Point. The cousin my age went was going to uh, Vanderbilt on a Navy ROTC scholarship. So if you were going to go to college in my family, that was the thing. And so I went to Georgia Tech on a Navy ROTC scholarship, but I am colorblind. And they took the scholarship away from me the first week of school. <laughs> so, well, there you have it. My, uh, I'll never forget the first week of college, my dad, uh, they came over to bring my stuff. I had gone to like a week kind of boot camp kind of thing where they pulled me out of the deal and said, Hey, we need to take you to the eye doctor. We hear that you're colorblind. Cause I had already failed the test already. I had already told them and they went and I'll never forget the uh, X, the XO, the commanding officer stood right over my shoulder as I took the test and we get done. And he goes, wow, you really are colorblind. And I thought, I've already told you guys that. I don't know why. Anyway, but my parents came to bring my stuff and my dad said, well, we can help with the first year, but I don't know how we're going to do it past that. So um, that was kind of a serious moment, but it all worked out and I finished college and here I am still colorblind. (laughs) All right. So I've not yet told people what you do for a job. I'll let you tell that. Um, 
yeah, just and then we'll go into that a little bit. But what, what's your title and where do you work, Clay? Yeah, I, uh, I graduated from Georgia Tech with a degree in industrial engineering. I, I say this jokingly, but I, it's the God honest truth. This happened. I sat in the registrar's office begging for her to let me graduate. And I said, I promise you that if you let me out of here, I will never use this degree. And she obliged. <laughs> and so I, yeah, I uh, graduated from uh, Georgia Tech and immediately went to seminary. I had been very involved in a church called North Point Community Church when I was in college in Atlanta. Uh, Andy Stanley is the still the senior pastor. And uh, now, so I graduated from seminary, moved back to Atlanta and started working at North Point. And uh, we now have six Atlanta area churches. And I am the, uh, I'm the lead pastor at our Alpharetta campus, which is actually the original campus. Uh, and it, for the, a lot of our history, it's been the broadcast campus. So we're a multi-site, video-driven, kind of simulcast church. Uh, and now Andy kind of bounces around and yep. uh, speaks at different campuses. But I, um, I lead our staff of about, I don't know, maybe 110 people, and I lead our church. And then I'll preach about 10 or 12, 15 times a year. So I kind of joke it. Uh, I, I kind of say it's like pastoring with training wheels on because uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not the, I'm not the senior lead guy, but I, and I have loads of bosses, but um, it's a great, great opportunity and uh, really grateful to be in the job that I'm in. Okay. We're going to come back to that in a moment, but I can't let this go because, and I hope as a pastor, you're not too offended. I know you won't be, but you have redefined for Georgia tech, what it means to be a hell of an engineer. <laughs> Yeah, I am a hell of an engineer. And uh, actually, I am not I would not be a good engineer. That's honestly I. Uh, so I, I've gotten the question before on an interview like this. I think for me, I had worked at Accenture business consulting firm uh, while I was at Georgia Tech for about two years. And then that was helpful. And then I read Jack Welch's biography straight from the gut. I don't know why I think it was over a Christmas break. And I remember reading it thinking, wow, if that's what it takes to succeed in the corporate world, I don't have what it takes. <laughs> and at the same time, I was real passionate about what I was, my, the volunteer work that I was doing. And I don't know, I, I think I, I, I am definitely driven by purpose. And uh, I really loved the idea of trying to help people and encourage people to make better decisions and have fewer regrets and uh, live better lives, which I think happens usually when people decide to live a life submitted to God's authority. So, um, yes, I am a pastor, but, um, I, I don't, I don't feel like a pastor. I feel like a regular guy, but a lot of times when people say, Oh, you're a pastor, they change the way they talk and just <laughs> don't bring up certain topics. So anyway, but I am, I like, I like to think of myself as very regular. What have you learned about leadership through that? Yeah. Um, well, I, I honestly, we probably operate like a lot of multi-site businesses where, uh, I mean, if you think about a, a restaurant that has a chain, I mean, we have, we have a central headquarters or central office support center, uh, and then we've got our different locations. And so um, I do feel like it creates a little bit more organizational complexity, which I think has helped me grow and mature as a leader. Uh, and so the, the, the book title really 
it's a it's one of those not creative very direct book titles um, and I did I never set out to write a book on leadership I really just bumped into this idea and realized over time that it's really resonated with a lot of people because I think it's in all of us to want to lead something. Uh, I, I know for me, I've wanted to be a leader ever since I could remember, ever since I was a little kid. And I just always thought, well, the way you become a leader is you get in charge of something. <laughs> because as kids, you grow up thinking, well, the parents are leaders and they're in charge and the teacher's leading and he's in charge and the coach is leading and she's in charge. And, uh, and I just learned, unfortunately, the hard way that the more authority you get, that that doesn't necessarily make you more of a leader. It just gives you more authority. So there are plenty of people today with a lot of authority that aren't leading well. And there are plenty of people today without a lot of authority that are really fantastic, great leaders that are having a lot of influence. So I really do love the subtitle of the book. I didn't write it. I think the publisher came up with it, but um, leveraging influence when you lack authority. I feel like um, it has really, uh, I've just gotten a lot of people that have said, wow, that is exactly how I feel. And it's exactly how I feel too. I feel like I have, I have more authority than I had when I really began the book, but uh, I still don't have all the authority I think I could use. I would love to have more authority, but I have just learned, unfortunately, just because you have authority doesn't mean you're leading. And just because you don't have it doesn't mean you can't lead, that you can lead today yeah. uh, because influence really is leadership and you can have influence from whatever seat you're in. Okay, we'll, we'll get to influence in a moment. But I love your comments about the gun of authority. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, will you explain the gun of authority? You kind of touched on that. You know, we went down sure. that path. But what's the gun of authority? So when I was, um, I learned this um, when I was probably 22. I had finished this uh, uh, co-op role at Accenture. And I was honestly, the reason why I landed myself this particular job was because I was looking for an easy A and at Georgia Tech there aren't a lot of them and I desperately needed one and I found this internship at the state capitol in the governor's office and working in his policy group and he was a brand new governor had just kind of rolled into office and I was real interested and excited about learning a little more about political science and about government work and uh, I got an internship uh, in their policy group my desk sat right next to the conference room and I think this particular day they were debating education and I just remember the voices getting louder and uh, definitely it seemed like a tense meeting and over everything else I could hear this banging of the table and then this bellowing voice that yelled out, I am the governor of the state of Georgia. Listen to me. Wow. And I just remember thinking, uh Oh, something hasn't gone right. And I had never been to a leadership conference. I had honestly, I'd never read a leadership book, but I was convinced hmm. that's not le that that is not great leadership. And that is an example of someone who's having to use authority. They're having to pull out the gun mm -hmm. of authority because authority is like a gun. So I've, I've used this illustration before, Kevin, and somebody was like, "Why so violent with the gun?" I don't know. I'm sorry if that offends anyone with the violence of the gun, but it does it. If somebody put a gun to your back and said, "Walk," you would. Yeah. Especially yeah. if you like your life. And if somebody pulled out authority and said, "Fill out this form or else," you would. Unfortunately, though, the gun of authority doesn't work long term. No one wants to work for a leader that has to tell you they're in charge in order for you to move. 
that even the best leaders, um, the greatest leaders, even the ones that don't have a ton of authority, they don't leverage authority. They, they leverage influence. Even, even when they get to be in charge, the greatest leaders yeah. learn how to use influence. So that, um, yeah, that, that's, the, that's the gun of authority. Well, I'm always fascinated, and I thought I was the only one that learned what it was like or began imagining what good leadership was like by enduring bad leadership. Yeah, but you are not the only one. Yeah, (laughs) as I began studying leadership and and went to grad school and that, everybody, that was where they first started seeing it for for the most part. So, Clay, what do you believe, believe is largely misunderstood about the power of positional authority and leadership? Well, there's a few things. I think the, the first thing that I discovered through this process, because I, you know, uh, the journey of a, the, the, I guess for me, one of the benefits of writing a book is I have learned more about this topic than I ever thought I could learn. Uh, and it, I, I remember I was telling my boss one day, I said, Hey, I think I'm going to try to write a book about this topic. And he said, you're going to turn a 30 minute talk into a book. Good luck with that. And that is, I mean, that is what happened. It was a 30 minute talk that I did at our staff meeting that I basically just, hmm. You know, the more you dig into a topic, the more, sometimes the more interesting it can get. And hopefully that's happened in this case. It's definitely happened for me, I can say. But so on this journey, one of the things I've learned, because I've talked to a number, I did a number of interviews with people who are in senior leader positions. And I would ask them about, hey, how does that feel? You know, once you get the ultimate authority, once, once they give you the gun in the organization, does it feel like, oh, now all of a sudden I get to leave? Because that has not been my experience. Unfortunately, my experience has been the more authority I've gotten, in some ways, the more difficult it's become. So that's probably the greatest myth of positional authority is that just because you have it doesn't mean you all of a sudden know how to use it and lead well. So I I was one of the people that I interviewed was Frank Blake, who is a former CEO of the Home Depot. And he is just a fascinating person because he, he's just not, um, he doesn't have a huge personality. You wouldn't think of him just, I think if you met him initially, you wouldn't necessarily think of him as a CEO of an $83 billion company, 350,000 employees, but he's a fascinating individual uh, because he was never the senior leader of anything that he had led before. He was always worked for someone. He worked for Jack Welch. He worked for both uh, President Bush's 41 and 43. He worked uh, in a couple of other private jobs, worked for uh, Bob Nardelli at the Home Depot, and then became the CEO of the Home Depot. And he said, he said, I remember when I first week, I sent out a memo of something, some directive that I had given that I felt like needed a change. And I walked down the hall and saw the memo in the trash can. <laughs> And I loved his humility in that, but he's an incredibly humble leader. But he just said, I think I, I, I quickly learned that just because you're in charge doesn't mean everyone's just going to do what you say they're going to do. And the truth is, and he helped me understand this truth, but the truth is everyone that works for me, they're, they're, even though in a sense we're paying them a salary, they're still a volunteer. Yeah. Everyone could leave at any moment. And so a lot of times we think, oh, well, I've got the authority. Now people are going to do what I'm telling them to do. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, especially today. I mean, 
this new generation of 20 somethings don't seem very fond of somebody just, you know, bossing them around. I know my kids don't enjoy that for sure. Really probably none of us do, but well, it doesn't sound like it was working out well for the governor. No, it hopefully, you know, I try to believe the best and I'm hoping that it got better after that, but yeah, that day it certainly did not seem to be working. Okay. So if, if it's not positional authority, if it's not power, what mm-hmm. is the real currency of leadership? Yeah. So I, um, I think, you know, I, I don't know who said it. I think John Maxwell, I feel like whenever I don't know who said something about leadership, I attribute it to Andy Stanley or to John Maxwell. But um, yeah, I think leadership is influence. That, that ultimately, I mean, to me, it's the simplest definition of leadership that I, I think of it like a delicious cream-filled donut. If you were to cut the donut open, and see all that cream. I feel like leadership's the same way. If you were to slice leadership open, it would, it would ooze influence because that's what, that's the, it really is the, the thing that moves people is the influence that you have over them. I mean, you think about anything you've ever done for someone that you loved or cared about or respected or admired that person they had influence with you. And so you listened and you responded and at times you did what they said. And that really is the essence of leadership is the ability to help people do what they don't want to do to accomplish the thing that they want to accomplish. And that's not easy to do. I mean, we've all, we all had coaches growing up or teachers growing up that we said, you know what, they just, they had it and whatever they said I did. And I am grateful for them because of the impact that they had on my life because of the influence that they had on my life. So I really believe that, greater than authority, all of us have this amazing opportunity in life to be able to cultivate a life of influence. Okay, so I love you that you use that word because uh, help us, what have you learned about the cultivation of influence? How does one do that? Are, yeah. are you born with influence? Either you have it or you don't, or can you cultivate it? I, I mean, I, I think certainly there are personality traits that have it more naturally than others. I think for some people, it just comes very easily. But I I do think that the way we live our lives, the way we treat other people, the way we handle the decisions that that are in front of us, all of that, all of those things, they either contribute positively or contribute negatively to this mining and harvesting process of, of influence. And I, I just find it to be very hopeful and I really, to whoever's listening to this today, I really hope this is, I hope this is a hopeful message because no matter what position you're in, if you can learn to cultivate influence, I really believe you can change the shape of your, you can change the future of the organization or the school or the business or the church that you work inside of and nothing around you has to change. Nothing around you quite possibly will change, but that potential is there because of the power of learning to become a person that has sustained influence. And I, I, I do think it comes easier for some people, but I think the great news is everyone has the, the opportunity to cultivate more of it today. All right. So here's a tweetable that Clay wrote in the book. If you fail to cultivate influence when you're not in charge, you will have no influence to leverage when you are. Yeah. When I, you know, I didn't think about that the day that that happened in the governor's office, but over time, as I look back on that, that was my, that was what I, 
thought about was somewhere along the way, he had missed an opportunity to cultivate influence. And he got the position of authority and was looking in his tool bag to figure out what can I pull out to try to get these people to do what I need them to do. And the only tool that he saw in there, I assume, or the only tool that he trusted was the tool of authority. And it just, that just doesn't feel good. So I, I the reason why I wrote that honestly is because I was trying to cheer myself up because I think a lot of times we think, Oh, the position I'm in, I'm just wasting time and no one recognizes my potential or they're not giving me enough opportunities. And I'm just literally sitting on my hands or I'm, I'm just biding time until they give me more authority. But the, that couldn't be further from the truth because what you're doing today matters so greatly because you're learning how to cultivate influence. I remember I was talking to a younger leader on our team who she was struggling uh, with a meeting that she had been in because she felt like she didn't know how to move the room. And she said, I felt like I knew exactly what we needed to do, but I didn't know how to get all of these people to see it without just offending them and telling them they were wrong. Mm. And I remember just sitting there smiling, thinking, that's the point of leadership, that if you can learn how to do that, if you can learn how to sway the room toward the direction that you think it ought to go, you can learn how to lead in any situation, if you have the power or if you don't. So I really do think it's a, it's a powerful concept because if you can figure it out, if you can become a person that understands how to cultivate more influence, it, it's just going to give you it's going to give you more sway in the world. We, we, we live in a world that really envies swag. Yep. And that is a great thing for, especially if you're in a dating relationship, it's great to have a lot of swag, but better than having a lot of swag is being a person that has a lot of sway because that's really, I think what we're all looking for is we're looking for, we're looking to become people that have impact, that have influence, that make a difference, that move something forward, that create progress, that hmm. uh, I, the, term I like is we're all hoping to create an oasis of excellence with what it is that we're working on today. Uh, yeah, I love the phrase oasis of excellence. Um, you and Andy both are just masters at the turn of the phrase. And that's a great phrase. So I'm going to ask you a question. I've never asked an author and I've talked to a lot of authors. So this is a behind the scenes question. Uh -oh. As the author, do you have a favorite idea in the book? That is a great question. Yeah, I mean, I, I, love, I love the idea of, you know, so, so I, I really struggled. To, one, I think the, I wrote about these four behaviors that I think you got to do to cultivate influence. And the first one is uh, leading yourself. Um, and so, so much of that was because I got tired of blaming. Mm -hmm. I got tired of sitting back going, oh, I can't lead well because my boss isn't leading me well, or he's not giving me enough opportunity, or she's, she doesn't see what I have to offer, whatever it may be. And everyone, all of us are tempted to do that. And so I wrote about leading yourself well, because I think that is important. However, I really hesitated because I thought, ah, I can't write about that. So many people have said so much about leading yourself well. I mean, books have been written, dissertations have been written on the art of leading yourself well. But uh, the more I dug into the idea, the more I realized, you know, so much of self-leadership because I thought, okay, well, how do you know how, where to lead yourself? How do you know what part of yourself needs to be led? And I really like the idea of 
monitoring your heart and your behavior. I like the idea of knowing exactly where you are right now as a form of self-leadership because you can't get to where you want to be if you don't know exactly where you are. I, I, I often think about that map at the shopping mall. I've got sisters, Kevin, so I'm quite uh, comfortable in a mall. And the first place you go when you're trying to look for a store is you go to that map and you find, you know, whatever store you're looking for in alphabetical order. And then you find, okay, A7 and you go find it on the map. Well, you can't get to A7 just with that information. You've got to find that star that says you are here. That is so crucial to know where you are in order for you to get to where you want to be. And I think the same is true for self-leadership that so much of leading yourself. I mean, obviously having a vision for where you want to go is important, but maybe more important than just having a vision for you for where you want to go is knowing exactly where you are. So I really like that concept because I, I mean, that's probably where so much of my maturity and development that has happened. I've still got a long way to go, but the stuff that has happened has happened through an exploration of self-discovery a, being ruthlessly curious about where I am right now. Uh, and the more aware you and I become of w- what we're good at, I think too often we fixate on our weaknesses, but part of leading yourself well is no, being super clear on what your strengths are. Uh, when I sit in interviews with younger leaders and I ask them, hey, tell me what you're good at. What are, what are the things that you just find yourself better than other people at? I mean, that's a difficult question to answer. Just yeah. Uh, because it feels prideful, but if you don't, if you can, it drives me crazy when people can't answer that question. Because I think if you don't know your strengths, who else is going to know them? I mean, you got to be yeah. very, uh, you got to be deeply acquainted with the things that you're good at, so that you can figure out how to put yourself in those kinds of positions. But I think so much of it is knowing what you're good at, knowing what you're not good at, knowing where your blind spots are. I mean, the very nature of a blind spot is that you can't see it. That's why it's a blind spot. So uh, there's something today. And this thought plagues me, but there's something today that is holding me back and I don't know what it is, Mm. but I have the opportunity to go figure out what it is. There are people in my life that are probably dying for me to ask. (laughs) There's information orbiting around me that if I would just go and solicit it, if I would just go and find it, it would unlock so much growth in me as a husband or a dad or a employee, leader, a boss, a friend, whatever. So I, I, I love that concept of just being ruthlessly curious of where you are right now as a form of self-leadership. Okay. In the introduction, I mentioned that uh, my son, our son, Josh, encouraged me to interview you. I also invited him to collaborate with me on questions. And so this next question is one Josh provided, and it, it builds on what you just said a moment ago. He was very curious. How, how much are you talking about these concepts the self-leadership concept with your team, especially those new to the organization at entry-level positions. And what are you doing to instill that self-leadership from day one? Well, I think this one is definitely one that it is better caught than taught. Mm. Uh, You're around a leader that is, has an insatiable desire to get better and grow. It is captivating. It's contagious. Mm. And honestly, that's probably one of the greatest things I've found about working with Andy is he, he, uh, we, we, we use this phrase for our, we, we do a conference for other churches that's called drive. Mm-hmm. And the little tagline to the conference is because we're not there yet. 
And that is really how he lives his life. He really has this, it, it is genuinely insatiable. It feels like it's never ending. I mean, I remember maybe the beginning of last year, he let off our staff meeting for the year, said, I have never been more motivated to grow than this year. And it's because of the caliber of staff that we have. I feel so, um, I can't remember his exact words, but he basically said, I I feel so committed to getting better because I don't want to be the bottleneck. And so many of you are growing so well. Wow. And I just remember, I mean, it, it, it was kind of depressing to me because I was like, wow, this is basically Michael Jordan saying that he's going to work harder than anyone else this year. You know, <laughs> like he's already the best and now he's saying he's going to work really hard. So, uh, but I, but I was also just so encouraged and it, and it, when I, you know, to hear a leader say that you just think, Oh gosh, well, if he's going to be an avid reader and if he's going to work on his weaknesses and if he's going to fit, be more acquainted with his strengths and play to those and, uh, put himself in challenging situations where he can grow, then I better do the same thing. So that's probably where I see it most in our culture. Do I talk to our new staff about this? I, I mean, I think one of the, I would say, so on one of the conversations we've had recently is uh, we've looked back over the last 20 years, the decisions that we made real early on. This is when I was just starting to attend our church, but um, the decisions that the leadership team of North Point Community Church made early on that they still think are great decisions. And one of those is that they set out to create, uh, they wanted to create a, a culture of learning, hmm. a culture that never stops learning. And I think, um, I, I would say that more than some kind of pipeline of, or uh, prescripted leadership plan that we give to leaders. I really think we've created a culture where if you're, if you don't desire to grow, you're not going to enjoy working here and you will eventually, it it will become a conversation point. So I, so I would say more than talking about it, they have modeled it. The leaders of our organization have modeled it. And then I think it has become caught. I mean, it is definitely part of our culture. So um, I mean, they asked me to do this same talk to our brand new staff every time we do an orientation. So yes, we do specifically talk about it, but I don't know. You've got kids, Kevin. <laughs> How many things have you talked to your kids about that have actually turned into behaviors? Well, what I've learned is your role model is your best teaching tool. It really is. It really is. Yeah. Uh, so with that, for this this learning culture and what you were just describing about Andy, does that require a certain of a level of vulnerability and getting comfortable with being vulnerable? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, and maybe this is a, I've never really thought about this, but, uh, you know, vulnerability is like giving someone else the gun, you know, yeah, it's, uh, giving someone else information or access that puts you in a that they could use against you that's right yeah i mean i think the very definition of vulnerability is you're you're in a uh position where you're not as safe as you could be or maybe power away yeah so um i do think you know what i have learned about feedback what i've learned about really trying to figure out where am i today is feedback uh, i learned this from thanks for the feedback 
a book by Doug Stone and I can't remember the gal's name, but Sheena something. Uh, they said at the very beginning of the book that feedback, the challenge of feedback is it sits at the intersection of progress or growth and acceptance mm. or rejection. So all of us want to grow. I mean, I saw these, I saw this data sometime, one of those Pew research polls that ask how many, how many Americans in, uh, in the business world or something want desire feedback and the, and the number was high. I mean like 80, 85% of people want feedback, but the percentage of people that request it, that ask for it, that literally go and solicit it, it's like less than 20%. And the reason why is because we all want to grow. That's the 80%. Everybody wants to get better. I mean, if nobody's sitting around, most people aren't sitting around today going, I don't know. I'm just kind of happy where I am. I mean, most people are like, yeah, I kind of want to get better. I'd love to grow. But the problem is when we get to that intersection to ask and solicit it and be vulnerable and give somebody else the gun or give someone else access to be able to tell us the thing about us that we could get better in, it feels like rejection. So we retreat. And so that's why I began the book talking about identity because you really if you can establish a healthy sense of identity, not thinking too highly of yourself, but not thinking too lowly of yourself, more, more important than that is thinking rightly about yourself. If you can do that, then it'll push you through the intersection and it'll, it'll give you the confidence and the security to be vulnerable about the things that you're not good at. Uh, and, and this is not an easy thing. I, last week I, took, I did this survey with our staff. I said, it's kind of the budgeting season for us. And I said, hey, what are the things that you see that you think we should stop doing. Mm. And then I said, secondly, what's the word on the street? What do you hear that has lost momentum? Mm. And I read through that survey and wanted to quit my job. I mean, it was so discouraging because the problems that were the most commonly identified were problems that only I don't mean only I could fix as in a prideful way, but they're, they're, they're challenges that have risen above the levels of leadership that they had gotten to my desk. Mm. And I felt so discouraged because I thought, how have I let these persist? And then secondly, I was so perplexed because I, I don't have answers for them right now. <laughs> so that feels so depressing, but, um, that was a, you know, but I, I, I had to get, I had to talk myself out of that and go, Hey, well, that doesn't mean, I, I kind of felt like one of those college football coaches where the team goes six and six for three or four straight years. And they hold a press conference and say, you know what, this isn't good for me. This isn't good for the team. This isn't good for you as the fan. I'm going to step aside and let somebody else have this role. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I felt, but I thought, you know what, that's not the answer. The answer is I got to lead, lead my way. I've got to lead through this because this is not personal. They're not saying something's wrong with you. They're just saying, Hey, this is something that needs to be fixed. And, uh, that feels like discouragement, but I don't know. It felt, it, it felt vulnerable to ask something that could be that personal, but, um, I'm, that's fresh. That's fresh paint. I'm really trying to work my way through that one. Well, thanks for sharing that, Clay. I want to come back and ask you a question. Another tweetable you just shared a moment ago, distorted identity will cause you to think too lowly or too highly of yourself when the goal is to think rightly. Who or what has helped you think rightly about Clay Scroggins? Yep. 
Well, I, uh, we, we're a, we're, our, our church, the style of our church is kind of rock and roll church. I, I enjoy that. Not everyone does, but I do. And I like music a lot. And I have learned from our musicians when I ask them, hey, what's the key to playing great music? I want our music to be great. I want people to feel like they're on top of the world when they're immersed in it, to feel like the, this is just an immersive, powerful, moving, emotional experience. And so we have a lot of conversations about, hey, how do we have great music? And it's, it's always been interesting to me. Musicians, uh, they, one of the first things they talk about is the mix that's in their ears. Uh, they, they, you know, you've got the front of house speakers that are going out to everybody in the crowd. But you'll see, uh, anytime you go see a performer, they have monitors in their ears. They sometimes have wedges on the front of the stage facing them, but a lot of times they'll have mm-hmm. monitors in their ear, and they're, those are there so that they can hear the drums and the guitars and the vocals and the keys. And, and before they get there, they'll sound check, and they're talking to somebody over here who's, got, who's at the monitor board. Who's, they'll say, hey, give me more vocals or give me more keys or give me less guitar or more cowbell my voice louder. What's that? More cowbell. More exactly. Yeah. I need more cowbell. Exactly. Um, and, and I feel like that is, that's the way I feel about identity is you can't, you can't just tune out voices though that might need to take place in somebody's life. But The voice of your dad is crucial. The voice of your boss is crucial. The voice of your friends are crucial. The voice of your spouse, your kids, all of those, they're like those little knobs. And at different times in our life, we need to turn those up and turn those down. But obviously, I, I come from a faith background. I'm a pastor. So I really believe that God has said some specific things about humanity and some specific things about me as a person. And my goal in my identity has been to let his voice, let what he says about me be the, the loudest voice. And that doesn't mean he's the only voice because my, I need to pay attention to what my wife says. So I can't just tune her out and, t- and turn her down. I actually need to turn her up. But uh, I also can't let the critics have too loud mm-hmm. of a volume either. So I think it's my responsibility to control that mix and to make sure that God's voice really is the loudest, for me, the, the loudest voice. But I think even if you're not a person of faith, I think the metaphor still works. I think you still need to figure out who are the voices that I need to turn up and who are the voices that I need to turn down. And you need to take responsibility to have the right mix because what you're hearing is what is driving your identity. And you can change the mix and you can form a stronger sense of identity just based on the voices that you turn up and turn down. Mm. So many more questions we, we could go. I, I got a, just a couple more. I want to make sure we squeeze in. What's the most important ongoing conversation most people have? Yeah, I think it's the conversation that you have with yourself. I mean, it's, it's the craziest thing to me, but, uh, I don't know, Kevin. Do you feel like your life is that way? Do you feel like you're talking to yourself all day long? Oh, yeah. I, I do too. And some days I am my I, – I, my goal is to be where I am my best encourager more often That's than right. my greatest critic. That's right. But it's real easy. Uh, the, the loudest voice of criticism is my voice. That's right. That's the same way for me too. I would imagine that's true for most people. Yeah. Um, which is so crazy that 
that we would do that to ourselves, but, um, and some of it's probably good. I mean, I don't know. Some of it's, we want to hold ourselves up to a standard. We believe things about ourselves, and we want our actions to match what we believe. I think all that's fantastic, but it is dangerous when the, the, it's, it's dangerous to walk around being that critical of yourself all day long. Okay, so here's another tweetable. This is something you wrote. We forget that our thoughts and feelings are our thoughts and feelings. We own them. They don't own us. Yeah, we got to, we, we, I really believe. And you know, it's crazy, Kevin, because as I started writing, I didn't start with this section. I really started with these four behaviors, but I started digging into these thinking, I, I mean, if to, to just apply leadership principles alone doesn't make a great leader that the, the, unfortunately the, or maybe fortunately, I'm not sure, depending on the person, but the, the greatest, most powerful uh, driver of leadership of influence is the person. It's you that you, the, the leader is far more important than the leadership. Mm. And that's why I spent the first couple chapters writing about identity because I really believe that um, it's so crucial to, to leading well, that you have to know who you are. You have to know what's true about you. And uh, I honestly, if any one of us could only get that point, Mm. it would make us a better leader today. Yeah. So another great line from the book, if I may, every distortion between the authority you have and the leadership you exercise can be traced to a crisis of identity. Yeah, I mean, so here's, a, here's another live example. I feel like we, uh, we are experiencing a digital disruption in our organization. Every, every industry is. The education industry, you know, I remember 10 years ago when I was at Dallas Seminary, they were trying to figure out, should we offer online classes? <laughs> I mean, it's I hope crazy. They did, or, or their history now, probably. Exactly. Unfortunately, they did, and it's really helped them. But, um, you know, uh, I just saw that Wells Fargo is closing 400 brick and mortar stores because when's the, when's the last time you went to a bank to deposit a check? I mean, now they've made online banking so much easier. So, I mean, every industry is experiencing it. And uh, our in the church world is experiencing it as well that people have access to so many great tools to help them grow spiritually that they don't. Uh, there is less of a need to come into the building, mm. particularly for us. I mean, Andy Stanley is a great communicator and his messages are widely listened to. I mean, I think in 2016, uh, there were probably 65 million clicks on one of Andy's sermons between website views, message streams on our app, podcast downloads, that sort of thing. So we're just trying to figure that out. Well, I really think it's the way of the future. I don't, I don't think we should fight it. I think we should leverage it. I want to put the sales up and let that wind blow because I think it's, it's the way we can really um, help more people going forward. But that really challenges a pretty significant paradigm of church attendance. So that's a, to me, that's a pretty, um, it's a pretty significant shift that I think our organization needs to make, but not everybody's in agreement. And unfortunately, the people are, who are not necessarily in agreement have authority over me. So <laughs> I've got that. I'm in that precarious position of trying to lead my bosses. And if I don't have a strong sense of who I am, it would be very easy to be discouraged 
on the days where I feel like I'm not being heard or they're not listening to me or they're not taking heed to the opinions that I have. Uh, and, but then on the flip side, if I believe too strongly about myself, uh, it would cause me to walk into my boss's office and say things that I, with a tone that I probably shouldn't say, you know, so neither one of those is a great option, but I really, and, and both of those ultimately, I think, I think any, any improper step that I take in regards to challenging my bosses ultimately can be traced back to a distortion in identity that I'm either thinking too lowly of myself or thinking too highly of myself and not, not being secure in who I am uh, to be able to challenge um, a long, long standing paradigm in our industry. So that's a, that's a current, current situation. So what, I can't let this one pass without asking. So what's the key to, you actually, in your book, you mentioned you learn this hosting a conference for Louis, Louis Giglio. Yeah. Yeah. What's the key for having to deliver the decision and own the decision that you didn't think was the best idea at the time? Yeah. Uh, the, what you're, that, example you're referring to, uh, Louis, a local pastor in Atlanta, uh, pastor Louis Giglio, and he's been a, for a long time, uh, he's been a indirect mentor to me. I've just been really impacted by his teaching. And, um, he asked me through somebody that works for him to host one of their conferences to host one of the venues at one of their conferences. And I was so honored. And I, I, when we sat down to talk about it, I said, Hey, so what's the key? What do you want me to do to do this? Well, I want to handle this as well as possible. And without even hesitating, he said, you need to own it. You need to own it like it is yours. When you talk about the hospital that we want to raise money to build in Syria, you need to talk about that like you sat in every meeting. When we talk about the album that we want to record with the new music that we're putting out, you need to talk about that album like it was your idea to record it. I want you to stand up there and own this like it's yours. We've invited you, but we want you to own it. and." I will never forget that because I really do think so much of that is, it's just not intuitive. I mean, you know, even in, I mean, it's, it's particularly rampant in the church world because we have values like honor and loyalty and which are great. But I think too often we think, Oh, I I don't know. I want to just, I'm, I'm waiting on somebody to give me specific direction. When unfortunately that happens, you're giving your boss two jobs. Your boss has her job. And now your boss has your job because your boss is now having to figure out what she needs to do and what you need to do. And part of, part of leading yourself is knowing, knowing what you need to work on today. So I just think, I think owning, owning the moment is really crucial. The, the challenge that you brought up as well, what do you do when you didn't get to weigh in on it? What do you do when you're being asked to own something that you didn't get to weigh in on? And that's the most difficult challenge to me. It is probably the maybe the maybe the number one challenge of leading when you're not in charge is I didn't make the decision, but I have to execute the decision. But uh, it's possible. I believe it's possible to still bring all of your positivity and your critical thinking and your initiative and your energy to an idea that you didn't make or a decision that you didn't make. Um, but if you'll bring your, if you'll bring your energy 
you can make the decision work. I'm convinced of that, that even the, even a mediocre decision can work if we can choose to get everybody behind it. And that's the way great organizations are run. Great organizations are not built on the best idea. They're built because everybody's getting behind the same idea. Mm. People are giving disproportionate energy to even a mediocre idea and it can make a great organization. Okay, there's so many things that Clay just said that I would love to explore. Time doesn't allow. That's why you need to get the book, read it, or listen to it. I'm doing both, actually. I've been reading it and listening to it. And I got to say, thank you for being the reader, the narrator of your book on Kindle. That just makes for a much greater experience. Penultimate question. What would you say to the person listening who feels they are stuck waiting for their time to come? Yeah, I would just encourage you and say it's not wasted. That and and not I don't know. That is a, that's just how I have felt for a lot of time in my own career. Is I just feel like uh, I'm just this it this doesn't matter, and I'm just waiting until I get more authority. But you're it is not wasted energy. Even working for a bad boss, if you feel stuck because you feel like your boss is not helpful or even worse, maybe oppressive it's not wasted energy that there's still a lot to be learned. In fact, this is the maybe a not encouraging truth, but I still think it's true. The best growth happens when there's resistance. I mean, there's a reason why the weight room is difficult. I hate the weight room because the weights are heavy. That's the point (laughs) that the heavy weights build strength. And the same thing is true for you today. If you're in a situation where you feel discouraged or you feel stuck or you feel like you're getting passed over, I'm just telling you, you can grow exponentially in this season because the the resistance that makes it hard is the resistance that will build strength Mm. in your life. And I, I hope that will encourage some people to not give up. Uh, I know, you know, you might need to leave. I mean, Kevin, you have not had the same job your entire career. I have not either. I think there's a time for all of us to leave. In fact, I don't know what percentage of people are in their final job they will ever be in. Very small. Less than 5%, I would imagine. Most people are in a job where they're going to move on. So be encouraged, be hopeful. Hey, it might be bad today. Well, you're not stuck forever. You're going to move on but don't move on before you've learned everything you can learn. Mm. Make sure to learn as much as you can learn, even if it's what not to do. As you said earlier, so much of what we learn about leadership, we learn in the difficult times through bad leadership. So make a list, write down the things that you're learning right now. Even if it's, man, when I get in charge, when they give me more authority, I'm going to never show up late, or I'm going to never discount somebody's opinion, or I'm going to never send out a survey and not respond to it. I don't know what it might be, but just make a list and say, hey, these are the things I'm not going to do. And at the very least, uh, you'll learn something. And you'll also give yourself something to be held accountable to when you do get more, more, uh, more opportunity. So I hope that's encouraging. Absolutely. Clay, thanks for joining us. For people that want to read the book or continue a conversation, learn more about you, yeah. where do they go? Uh, the book is that most of the retailers, I think, um, the online or even brick and mortar retailers, if you still buy books in person, those, a lot of those bookstores will carry it. And then, uh, on social media, 
Uh, I'm on Twitter at Clay Scroggins on Instagram at Clay Scroggins, or I have the URL ClayScroggins.com. That was a kind of a depressing day when I bought my own URL, but buying some other name felt confusing. So <laughs> anyway, but if you go to, if you go to the website, uh, you can put your, uh, you can give us your email and this fall we're sending out, uh, even into, uh, through 2018, we're sending out a lot of, uh, resources, a lot of interviews that we've done with some really fantastic leaders that you can, um, stay in touch with. All right. ClayScroggins.com. Thanks for joining us, Clay. Thanks, Kevin. Wow, Clay, thanks for joining us today. Let me hit you three takeaways. There's so many. This was just a rich, rich conversation with Clay, but I want to hit three. One of those is that leadership oozes influence. If you were to cut leadership donut, like a jelly-filled donut, what would be in the center is influence. Love the metaphor, plus it made me hungry, especially if that's a gluten-free donut, Clay. The second takeaway from the conversation with Clay is this idea of blind spots, that there's something today that's holding me back, and I don't know what it is. But there is a way I can find out if I'm willing to make myself vulnerable. And the third takeaway, I'm going to let Clay, you got to go back and listen to it if you didn't catch it. But that's where Clay was talking about the the issues, asking questions that are real time in his organization, what he called the fresh paint, asking two questions in his organization. What should we stop doing and what's the word on the street? Wow, I hope you're courageous enough to ask those questions or you develop the courage to ask those questions. I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. And I want to remind you, you were meant for more. Why would you ever settle for less? If you feel like you don't have purpose at work or you want to clarify your purpose at work, we have a free five-day email course you can take with daily challenges and action steps to help bring the meaning you are meant to have in your everyday life. Go to kevinmonroe.com slash workpurpose.